Section 18 of A Dozen Ways of Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. A Dozen Ways of Love by Lily Dugall. A Freak of Cupid. Chapter 2. My name is Courthope. The visitor, denuded of coat and cap, presented his card upon which was written Mr. George Courthope. He began telling his hostess whence he came and what was his business. A quarry which a dead relative had bequeathed to him had had sufficient attraction to bring him across the sea and across this railless region. His few words of self-introduction were mingled with and followed by regrets for his intrusion, expressions of excessive gratitude. All the time his mind was questioning amazedly, by the time the speeches which he deemed necessary were finished, he had followed the girl into a spacious room, furnished in the large gay style of the fifties, brightly lit, as if for a festival, and warmed by a log fire of generous dimensions. Having led him in, listening silently the while, and put her additional lamp upon the table, she now spoke, with no impressment, almost with a matter of insouciance. "'You are perfectly welcome.' My father would never have wished his house to be inhospitable. With her words his own apologies seemed to lose their significance. He felt a little foolish, and she, with some slight evidence of childish awkwardness, seemed to seek a pretext for short escape. "'I will tell my sister.' These words came with more abruptness, as if the interior excitement was working itself to the surface. The room was a long one. She went out by a door at the farther end, and, as with intense curiosity he watched her quickly receding form, he noticed that when she thought herself out of his sight, she entered the other room with a skip. At the same end of the room hung a full-length portrait of a gentleman. It was natural that Courthope should walk towards it, trying to become acquainted with some link in the train of circumstances which had raised this enchanted palace in the wilderness. He had not followed to hear, but he overheard. Eliz, it's a real young man. No, you are only making up, and— Here a touch of querulousness. I've often told you that I don't like make-ups, that one wants too much to be true. I'll only have the Austins, and Sir Charles, and Evelina, and— Eliz, he's not a make-up. The fairies have sent him to our party. Isn't it just fairly entrancing? He has a curly moustache and a nice nose— He's English, like father. He says, can't, and shan't, and hey, and thea. Genuine, no affectation. Oh, here came a little gurgle of joy. And tonight, too. It's the first perfectly joyful thing that has ever come to us. Courthope moved quietly back and stood before the blazing logs, looking down into them with a smile of pure pleasure upon his lips. It was not long before the door, which she had left ajar, was reopened, and a light-wheeled chair was pushed into the room. It contained a slight, elfin-like girl, white-faced, flaxen-haired, sharp-featured, and arrayed in gorgeous crimson. The elder sister pushed from behind. The little procession wore an air of triumphant satisfaction, still tempered by the proprieties. "'This is my sister,' said the mistress of the house." "'I am very glad to see you, Mr. Courthope.' The tones of Eliz were sharp and thin, 
she was evidently acting a part, as with the air of a very grand lady she held out her hand. He was somewhat dazzled. He felt it not inappropriate to ask if he had entered fairyland. Eliz would have answered him with a fantastic affirmative, but the elder sister, like a sensible child who knew better how to arrange the game, interposed. "'I'll explain it to you. Eliz and I are giving a party tonight. There hasn't been any company in the house since father died four years ago, and we know he wouldn't like us to be dull. So when our stepmother went out and sent word that she couldn't come back tonight, we decided to have a grand party. There are only to be play people, you know. All of the people in Miss Austen's books are coming, and the nice ones out of Sir Charles Grandison. She paused to see if he understood. Are the mysteries of Udolpho invited? he asked. No, the others we chose here and there, because we liked them. Evelina, although she was rather silly, and we told her that we couldn't have Lord Ormford, and Miss Matty, and Brother Peter out of Cranford, and Moses Wakefield, because we liked him best of the family, and the Portuguese nun who wrote the letters. We thought we would have liked to invite the young man in Maud to meet her, but we decided that we should have to draw the line somewhere and leave out the poetry people. The girl, leaning her forearm slightly on the back of her sister's chair, gave the explanation in soft, business-like tones, and there was only the faintest lurking of a smile about the corners of her lips to indicate that she kept in view both reality and fantasy. "'I think that I shall have to ask for an introduction to the Portuguese nun,' said Courthope. "'The others, I am happy to say, I have met before.' A smile of approval leapt straight out of her dark eyes into his, as if she would have said, "'Good boy, you have read quite the right sort of books.' Eliz was not endowed with the same well-balanced sense of proportion, for the time the imaginary was the real. "'The only question that remains to be decided,' she cried, "'is what you would prefer to be. We will let you choose. Bingley, or Darcy, or—' "'It would be fair to tell him,' said the other, her smile broadening now, "'that it's only the elderly people and notables who have been invited to dinner. The young folks are coming in after. So if you are hungry—' Her soft voice paused, as if suspended in mid-air, allowing him to draw the inference. "'It depends entirely on who you are, who I would like to be.' He did not realize that there was undue gallantry in his speech. He felt exactly like another child playing, loyally determined to be her mate, whatever the character that might entail. "'I will even be the idiotic Edward, if you are Eleanor Dashwood.' Her chin was raised just half an inch higher, the smile that had been peeping from eyes and dimples seemed to retire for the moment. "'Oh, we,' she said, "'are the hostesses. My sister is Eliz King, and I am Madge King. And I think you had better be a real person, too, just a Mr. Courthope, come in by accident.' "'Well, then, he can help us in the receiving and chatting to them.' Eliz was quite reconciled. He felt glad to realize that his mistake had been merely playful." In that case, may I have dinner without growing grey? He asked it of Madge, and her smile came back, so readily that she forgot what she had hardly consciously perceived. When the sharp-voiced little Eliz had been wheeled into the dining-room to superintend some preparations there before the meal was ready, Courthope could again break through the spell that the imaginary reception imposed. 
he came from his dressing-room to find Madge at the housewifely act of replenishing the fire. Filled with curiosity, unwilling to ask questions, he remarked that he feared she must often feel lonely, that he supposed Mrs. King did not often make visits unaccompanied by her daughters. "'She does not. Worse luck,' Madge on her knees replied with childish audacity. "'I hope when she returns she may not be offended by my intrusion.' "'Don't hope it,' she smiled. "'Such hope would be in vain.' He could not help laughing. "'Is it dutiful of you?' he paused. "'Or of me?' "'Which do you prefer, to sleep in the barn, or that I should be undutiful and disobey my stepmother?' In a minute she gave her chin that lift in the air that he had seen before. "'You need not feel uncomfortable about Mrs. King. The house is really mine, not hers, and father always had his house full of company. I am doing my duty to him in taking you in, and in making a feast to please a Liz when the stepmother happens to be away, and I can do it peaceably.' and when she happens to be here, I do my duty to him by keeping the peace with her. "'Is she unkind to you?' he asked, with the ready, overflowing pity that young men are apt to give to pretty women who complain. But she would have him know that she had not complained. There was no bitterness in her tone. Her philosophy of life was all sweetness. "'No! Bless her! God made her, I suppose, just as he made us. So—' According to the way she is made, she packs away all the linen and silver, she keeps this room shut up for fear it will get worn out, and we never see any visitors. But today she went away to St. Felipe to see a dying man. I think she was going to convert him or something, but he took a long time to die, and now we may be snowed up for days, and we are going to have a perfectly glorious time. She added hospitably, You need not feel under the slightest obligation— for it gives us pleasure to have you, and I know that father would have taken you in. Courthope rose up and followed her glance, almost an adoring glance, to the portrait he had before observed. He went and stood again face to face with it. A goodly man was painted there, dressed in a judge's robe. Courthope read the lineaments by the help of the living interpretation of the daughter's likeness. Benevolence in the mouth, a love of good cheer and good friends in the rounded cheeks, a lurking sense of the poetry of life in the eyes, and in the brow reason and a keen sense of right proportion dominant. He would have given something to have exchanged a quiet word with the man in the portrait, whose hospitality, living after him, he was now receiving. Madge had been arranging the logs to her satisfaction. She would not accept Courthope's aid, and now she told him who were going to dine with them. She had great zest for the play." Mr. and Mrs. Bennet, of course, and we thought we might have Mr. Knightley, because he is a squire and not so very young, even though he is not yet married. Miss Bates, of course, and the Westons. Miss Dashwood has declined, of which we are rather glad, but we are having Mrs. Jennings. She went on with her list. We could not help asking Sir Charles with Lord and Lady G, because he is so important, but Grandmamma Shirley is mortifying at present. She wrote that she could not stand so rich a regale. Sir Hargrave Pollocksvin will come afterwards with Harriet, and I am thankful to say that Lady Clementia is not in England at present, so could not be invited. She stopped, looking up at him freshly to make a comment. Don't you detest Lady Clementia? 
when they went into the dining-room the choice spirits deemed worthy to be at the board were each introduced by name to the lady eliz who explained that because of her infirmities she had been unable to have the honour of receiving them in the drawing-room she made appropriate remarks inquiring after the relatives of each offering congratulations or condolences as the case demanded it was cleverly done courthope stood aside immensely entertained and when at last he too began to offer spirited remarks to the imaginary guests he went up in favour so immensely that eliz cried let mr courthope take the end of the table let mr courthope be father it's much nicer to have a master of the house she began at once introducing him to the invisible guests as her father and madge if she did not like the fancy did not cross her will there was in madge's manner a large good-humoured tolerance the table was long and amply spread with fine glass and silver nothing was antique everything was in the old-fashioned tasteless style of a former generation but the value of solid silver was not small the homely serving-woman in her peasant-like dress stood aside submissive as it seemed but ignorant of how to behave at so large a dinner courthope who in a visit to the stables had discovered that this frenchwoman with her husband and one young daughter were at present the whole retinue of servants wondered the more that such precious articles as the young girls and the plate should be safe in so lonely a place madge was seated at the head of the table courthope at the foot eliz in her high chair had been wheeled to the centre of one side madge playing the hostess with gentle dignity was enjoying herself to the full a rosy cooing sort of joy in the play in the feast that she had succeeded in preparing in her amusement at the literary sallies of eliz and above all perhaps in the company of the new and unexpected playmate to whom because of his youth she attributed the same perfect sympathy with their sentiments which seemed to exist between themselves courthope felt this he felt that he was idealized through no virtue of his own but it was a delightful sensation and brought out the best that was in him of wit and pure joyfulness to eliz the creatures of her imagination were too real for perfect pleasure her face was tense her eyes shot sparkles of light her voice was high for her the entertainment of the invisible guests involved real responsibility and effort asides are allowed of course said eliz as if pronouncing a debatable rule at cards of course said madge or we could not play it's the greatest fun cried eliz to hear sir charles telling mr john knightley about the good example that a virtuous man ought to set with hands and eyes uplifted he's explaining the duty he owes to his maker it's rare to see john knightley's face i seated them on purpose with only miss matty between them because i knew she wouldn't interrupt courthope saw the smile in madge's eyes was bent upon him as she said softly you won't forget that you have lady catherine de Bourgh at your right hand to look after i can see that brother peter has got his eye upon her and i don't know how she would take the seraphim story if she begins any of her dignified impertinence here he answered i intend to steer her into a conversation with charlotte lady g courthope had a turkey to carve he was fain to turn from the guest to ask advice as to its anatomy of madge who was carving a ham and assured mr woodhouse that it was thrice baked exactly as searle would have done it stupid it was apples that were baked whispered eliz 
"'You see,' said Madge, when she had told him how to begin upon the turkey, "'we wondered very much what a dinner of two full courses might be, "'and where the corner dishes were to be set. "'We did not quite know. Do you?' "'You must not have a sides that are not about the people,' cried Eliz, intensely. "'Catherine Morland's mother is talking common sense to General Tilney and Sir Walter Elliot, "'and there'll be no end of a row in a minute if you don't divert their attention.' Eliz had more than once to call the other two to account for talking privately adown the long table. "'What a magnificent ham!' he exclaimed. "'Do you keep pigs?' Madge had a frank way of giving family details. "'It was once a dear little pig, and we wanted to teach it to take exercise by running after us when we went out, but the stepmother, like Bunyan, penned it, until at last it came to be, for length and breadth, the bigness which you see.' More than once he saw Madge's quick wit twinkle through her book-lore. When he was looking ruefully at a turkey by no means neatly carved, she gave the comforting suggestion, "'Tis impious in a good man to be sad. I thought it one of the evidences of piety. It is true that he was young who said it, but so are we. Let us believe it fervently. When Madge swept across the drawing-room, with her amber skirts trailing, and Eliz had been wheeled in, they received the after-dinner visitors. Courthope could almost see the room filled with quaint creations to whom they were both bowing and talking incessantly. "'Mr. Courthope, Miss Jane Fairfax, I believe you have met before.' Madge's voice dropped in a well-feigned absorption in her next guest, but she soon found time again to whisper to him a long speech, which Miss Bates had made to Eliz. Soon afterwards she came flying to him in the utmost delight to repeat what she called a lovely sneep, which Lady G. had given to Mrs. Elton. Nor did she forget to tell him that Emma Woodhouse was explaining to the Portuguese nun her reasons for deciding never to marry. "'Out of sheer astonishment she appears to become quite tranquilized,' said Madge, as if relating an important fact. His curiosity concerning this nun grew apace, for she seemed a favorite with both the girls, when it was near midnight the imaginary pageant suddenly came to an end, as in all cases of enchantment. Eliz grew tired, one of the lamps smoked and had to be extinguished, the fire had burned low. Madge declared that the company had departed. She went out of the room to call the servant, but in a few minutes she came back discomfited, a little pout on her lips. "'Isn't it tiresome? Matilde and Jacques Morin have gone to bed.' "'It's just like them,' fretted Eliz. At the fretful voice, Madge's face cleared. "'What does it matter?' she cried. "'We are perfectly happy.' She lifted the lamp, with which he had first seen her, and commenced an inspection of doors and shutters. It was a satisfaction to Courthope to see the house. It was a French building, as were all the older houses in that part of the country, heavily built, simple in the arrangements of its rooms.' Every door on the lower floor stood open, inviting the heat of a large central stove. Insisting upon carrying the lamp while Madge made her survey, he was introduced to a library at the end of the drawing-room, to a large house-place or kitchen behind the dining-room. These, with his own room, made the square of the lower story. A wing adjoining the further side was devoted to the Morins. Having performed her duty as householder, Madge said good-night. "'We have enjoyed it ever so much more because you were here.' She held out her hand. Her face was radiant. 
he knew that she spoke the simple truth. She lifted the puny Eliz in her arms and proceeded to walk slowly up the straight staircase which occupied one half of the long central hall. The crimson scarves hanging from Eliz, the length of her own silk gown, embarrassed her. She stopped a moment on the second step, resting her burden upon one lifted knee to clutch and gather the gorgeous raiment in her hand. "'You see, we put on mother's dresses that have always been packed away in the garret.' Very simply she said this to Courthope, who stood holding a lamp to light them in their ascent. He waited until the glinting colors of their satins, the slow motion of the burden-bearer's form, reached the top and were lost in the shadow of an open door. End of chapter 2